Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome to episode 77 of the Living Church Podcast, a very biblically propitious number. And happy continued Easter. I'm your host, Amber Noel, Associate Editor at the Living Church and Associate Director of the Living Church Institute, if you were wondering what I did with my time. And on behalf of the Institute, I feel moved to tell you about a conference that we have coming up in September. It's called Love's Redeeming Work. I think I've told y'all about it before. Love's Redeeming Work, Discovering the Anglican Tradition. It asks, what is Anglican Christianity? What are its vocations or charisms? And what can we hope for its future? We'll be tackling these questions post-Lambeth, well, maybe less tackling, more like discussion, learning, friendship building, barbecue eating in Oklahoma City. And the conference is especially for young leaders and leaders in formation in the Episcopal Church, Global Communion, and Anglican tradition. The two-day conference will be like a crash course in Anglican history, theology, ecclesiology, and Christian life as expressed in Anglicanism. Very steep student discounts for seminarians, postulants, etc. Tickets start at just 25 bucks. Not bad. And it'd be great to see you there. I'll be there. Would be great to meet you. You can go to loves-redeeming-work.eventbrite.com. Or if you didn't get a chance to pull out a pencil and write all that down, you can just click the link in the show notes. Now, speaking of love's redeeming work, who listening to this episode today, by a show of hands, has ever heard of a little theological term, theosis? This is an important term, beloved, you can put your hand down. This is an important term, beloved and taught most explicitly in Eastern Christianity, but it's at the heart of our Christian hope, and many Christians believe, at the heart of Christian experience. It's a term that grabbed my attention many years ago because to my little old Pentecostal heart, it captured the dynamism of life in Christ that I'd been told I should pursue growing up. But it homed it within the life of the church and most ancient root systems of the Christian faith. And if you've not heard this word theosis, I'll just leave you with that little teaser for now. Many of us have had these moments of finding the vocabulary of the heart or of some experience or desire that we couldn't quite name suddenly appear before us in the writings of the saints. Well, then when I started reading C.S. Lewis, I found a translator and a teacher of many of these concepts and an imagination that helped me put them on a theological map, maps that often looked like Narnia or the planet Venus. Though Lewis doesn't use the word theosis in his writings, I found my understanding of this core Christian hope expand under his teaching. And I wondered, how much interest in or exposure to Eastern Christianity did Lewis have in his life as an Anglican? Who were his teachers? What do we learn through what he was learning about love's redeeming work? So, on to theosis in the life, works, and relationships of C.S. Lewis. What do we find there? I had a couple of conversation partners and guides who were up to this task, and we unearthed a few delightful surprises together. 
Doctors Crystal and David Downing are co-directors of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College, Illinois, which promotes the work of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, Charles Williams, and three other key British Christian authors. And it also helps develop new writers and scholars of faith and imagination. Crystal formerly served as Distinguished Professor of English and Film Studies at Messiah College and is author of several books on Dorothy Sayers, postmodernism, and film. And, by the way, her most recent book, Subversive, Christ Culture and the Shocking Dorothy L. Sayers, won a starred review by Publishers Weekly and was Publishers Weekly's Pick of the Week. Congratulations, Crystal. David Downing has written several scholarly books on C.S. Lewis, and he's also provided a critical introduction and explanatory notes to the new edition of Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress. He also serves as a consulting reader of Lewis, a speaker on Lewis, and editorial consultant for a number of academic publishers. Now, let's enter the wardrobe, hop on the bus, snuggle into our space capsule, or just hold tight to your copy of St. John Climacus and enjoy the conversation. Well, David, Crystal, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to join you. Yes, we're hoping you will join us at the Wade Center sometime soon as well. Oh, I would love to. Now, we are in Eastertide, beautiful season, where we're getting drawn into the mystery, the joy of the resurrection and what that means for us. One of the themes of Easter and then on into Pentecost and then on into ordinary time, actually, is theosis, what I would just very briefly define as being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ in all of its fullness, experiencing and living into his life. And being a lover and a student of the works of C.S. Lewis for 10 plus years now, I have seen theosis, mystical union with Christ and his resurrected life and how that all plays out in a human life. This is a theme that I've seen over and over in Lewis. And so today I thought we'd do a little theological exploration of this concept through the life and works of C.S. Lewis. And so we'll look along the beam, as it were, for some Eastertide inspiration. And I thought, of course, who better to have here with me today than Crystal and David Downing? So first, I'd love to just talk a little more about theosis, um, especially for people who aren't familiar with this theological concept, uh, flesh it out a bit. This is pretty easy to figure out in Greek, although I've never taken Greek, but it means something like becoming like God, uh, or maybe to put it in a little more spicy way, becoming divine. Theos being God, and then osis indicating a process, theosis. Well, the term theosis doesn't come up much in uh, C.S. Lewis's books and letters because he wasn't that familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, He literally quotes 35 or 40 Western saints, uh, starting with Augustine and coming down to uh, Thomas Merton. But uh, he doesn't mention uh, Maximus the Confessor or John Climacus or some other really key figures in Eastern Orthodoxy. I think for him, it it came mainly through a book by Evelyn Underhill called Mysticism. Both T.S. Eliot and Lewis read uh, Evelyn Underhill's work. She was a great mysticism scholar. Uh, She takes the mystical way. In the West, rather than theosis, they tend to talk about sanctification in terms of the mystical way. She divides it into five stages. She has the awakening to God. She does talk about purgation and illumination, but she doesn't think they're separate stages. She thinks they're intertwined. The more you're purified spiritually, the more you understand more clearly. So that's stages one, two, and three. And then stage four is the dark night of the soul, a feeling of the death of the ego, almost your own soul's crucifixion. And dark there doesn't necessarily mean horrible or miserable or despairing. It can also mean obscure. You don't know what's happening exactly. You don't know where God is, and in a way, you don't know where you are. But after that fourth stage, you come out on the side of, as I say, she doesn't say theosis, and she avoids saying uh, union with God, because that sounds too much like we become gods. She says uh, marriage with God or walking with God or experiencing the fullness of God in your inner being which is pretty much what Paul promised when Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, may you, may you feel the height and depth 
uh, and feel God's presence in your inner being. So that was the outline that was very influential for Lewis. But just very briefly for those who who aren't familiar with the three stages where the the Eastern theology would describe, and I think that you know the Catholic Church has is embra- has embraced and and other denominations too have embraced and explored the concept of theosis with with the three stages of purgation or purification, and then illumination, and then sainthood. Um, and so Evelyn Underhill stretching it out in, into five, describing it as an awakening to God, and then purgation, and then illumination, the dark night of the soul, and the marriage with God being those five steps. So thanks for thanks for clarifying that, David. And, and then, Crystal, I know that you have got some insights here. Well, it's very important to realize that both Lewis and Sayers were influenced by an Eastern Orthodox theorist, philosopher, named Nicholas Zernoff. In fact, when Lewis died, Zernoff's wife placed a Russian cross of white flowers at his grave. And Lewis had presented a paper at an organization founded by uh, the Eastern Orthodox Zernoff. And then in 1944, Sayers read a book by Zernoff called The Church of the Eastern Christians. And she has this amazing statement. And so here is what Sayers said. I have just been reading Dr. Zernoff's The Church of the Eastern Christians, which was so attractive that I almost wanted to rush out and get converted to orthodoxy (laughs) immediately. There seemed to be so many points on which the Eastern attitude to things connected or at any rate complemented the Western and had a warmth and richness of charity and imagination, which is lacking in the legalism and formality of the West. Why have we been so ignorant all this time about the Eastern Church? And what prepared her for reading that 1942 book was her fascination with a philosopher named Nicholas Berjayev, who had been influenced by Maximus the Confessor. And when you look up accounts of theosis, they always take you back to this 7th century uh, theologian, Maximus the Confessor. And uh, Berjayev was profoundly affected Sayers, even before she discovered Zhernoff, by his emphasis on creativity. So that uh, Berjayev says to overcome the dualism of existence is possible only through creativity. And that's a very Christian assumption because uh, dualism of thought is not consonant with the fundamental doctrine established at Nicaea in 325 that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. And almost all the heresies of the church have um, separated those, either by emphasizing one or the other. So what is nice about theosis, and I think intrigued both Lewis and Sayers, is it emphasizes the hypostatic union between the divine and the human. So we are following in the example of Christ in the process of theosis. And I'd like to now talk, move into talking more about how that happens and, and the, the things that draw us into that transformation and what that transformation affects in our lives. And so first I want to I wanna talk about delight, theosis and delight, what they might have to do with one another. Now, delight or joy, and joy for C.S. Lewis uh, specifically has a very technical definition, which maybe we can get into. And these are, these are so important to Lewis and in the process of sanctification and salvation. So how, how do delight, joy with a capital J, the things we're drawn to and our pursuit of them, how do these relate to the process of salvation? What do we see Lewis doing with delight and with joy? Well, as you say, he had a specialized meaning for joy with a capital J. He says ever since he was a child, he would get the sense of uh, this wonderful paradise on the horizon, and you could see it, but you couldn't get there. So he uh, would say it's both extremely pleasurable to experience 
paradise, but it's extremely painful that you somehow we feel cast out. And in Surprised by Joy, the search for the object of that feeling is really the thread of his whole memoir. That is it in uh, lust? Is it in the occult? Is it in uh, human fame? Uh, and it wasn't until he got later on in life, he realized that that experience was just a pointer. It was, you're not looking to keep having the experience itself. You're trying to find the object of that desire. And he calls it in Pilgrim's Regress, the dialectic of desire. You try to figure out where that feeling is coming from. And eventually you realize that just as hungry people prove that there's something out there called bread, then the fact that we constantly are longing for this infinite perfection, uh, that, that suggests strongly that there is an object to that feeling of sweet desire. So yeah, that, that's a key concept in his famous sermon, Weight of Glory, uh, in his memoir, Surprised by Joy, in Pilgrim's Regress. I, you might call that one of the master motifs of Lewis's whole life is the unattainable longing, which leads us eventually to God. So this delight and this sweet longing actually can constitute the beginning of a movement into the life of Christ and into this, this process of transformation. Something, something else that occurs to me, actually, Crystal, I'd like for you, for you to respond first before I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think that dualism can be a temptation among Protestants who talk about theosis insofar as Protestantism tends to reinforce the idea of autonomy. It's my personal relationship with Jesus, even though that phrase appears nowhere in the Bible. And this desire, I want a mystical experience. I'm turning into a um, more godlike person. Whereas in the Eastern tradition, and this is something that Sayers repeatedly emphasizes, the Eastern tradition is committed to community, that theosis doesn't operate in this isolated me and God environment. Uh, and this goes along with the point made by a famous theologian called Catherine Maury Lacuna, in the East, she makes clear, communion underlines mm. being. Mm. And of mm. course, this is the basis mm -hmm. of our understanding of God, that God's own self is communal. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in constant relationship with each other. And this has led some Russian Orthodox uh, leaders to explain, and they, there's one who relates it to Lewis, Callistos Ware, mm -hmm. says, quote, to be a person is to face another, mm. to look toward and to enter into relationship with the other. There is no true personhood without relationship. Mm. If we're going to take interest in theosis, it's not just about um, somehow having this wonderful experience on our own we are called to be in a community as well. And I find it kind of fascinating that Protestant churches, everybody kind of does the same thing at once, but thinks of it as I'm having my own personal worship experience. Whereas when C.S. Lewis went to a Greek Orthodox mass, he commented on the fact that he saw no, and I'm quoting Lewis here, uh, there seemed to be no prescribed behavior for the congregation. Some stood, some <laughs> knelt, some sat, some walked. One crawled about the floor like a caterpillar. <laughs> and the beauty of it, the beauty of it was that nobody took the slightest notice of what anyone else was doing. I wish we Anglicans would follow their example. And so they're, they're in community, but their, their individuality is endorsed by community, both Sayers and Lewis recognized community as inherent to God's nature as a trinity and is what we're called on if we're going to become uh, more God-like.
getting an Easter basket from my parents at my age, really not embarrassing. Once they realize that I'm more into like Ferrero Rocher, not so much into jelly beans, we have had a pretty good understanding. This is part of our celebration of Easter, even if somewhat ironically, and it's one of the things that we share as a family. Today, I want to encourage you to think about your family of faith at Easter time, especially in the Anglican Communion, and consider an Easter gift to the Living Church. We are a nonprofit ministry. We rely on donations to continue bringing erratic and incisive journalism, theology, book and art reviews, cultural analysis, and learning and relationship building opportunities for clergy and lay leaders in a uniquely Catholic, evangelical, and ecumenical way. To support what we do, you can go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate and give now, or learn about creative giving options like gifts of stock and bequests. We're not picky about what you decide to put in our Easter basket, and we're so grateful to you for considering a gift. Again, that's livingchurch.org forward slash donate, or just click the link in the show notes. This, this is so beautiful. This, I'm, I'm seeing what you both have been saying come together in actually, I'm, I'm thinking so strongly of the magician's nephew. And uh, let, me, let me set this up a little bit. So David was talking about the sweet longing that, that was so important for Lewis, a longing for Eden, a longing for a transformed Eden. But also there's the angel that stands at the garden with the sword. So we're blocked from it uh, for now, I'm in, in, a, in a sense. Of course, Christ being the tree of life and all that, in a sense, it's open, but in a sense, it hasn't been consummated. So there's a blockage that happens. So there's a paradox. We're presented with something we long for and we're supposed to pursue, but but there's still this, this um, it still hasn't come all together. And so the longing continues, even as we're moving toward this horizon. And part of living in that paradox is to accept the limitations of the things that we cannot have and to take the fulfillment of any of our desires and longings as God gives them instead of grasping for them. And this makes me think of the difference between Diggory's journey in The Magician's Nephew and the journey of the witch in The Magician's Nephew. So uh, in, in the end of this book, sorry guys, spoiler alerts, a few spoiler alerts, uh, you, but you just need to go read it ASAP, so I'm sorry, it's not my fault. So in The Magician's Nephew, it's one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, uh, this little boy, Diggory, he, his mother's very sick. She's about to die. And he discovers, he goes to Narnia with his friend, Polly, and they have a mission. They've accidentally brought a witch into Narnia. So as a kind of penance, they have to go and find, pluck an apple from a beautiful tree in an enclosed garden. They're not allowed to eat the apple. They have to bring it uneaten, untasted to Aslan. And then Aslan's going to use that apple to somehow benefit his world of Narnia. And so when they when they go to this garden, they find the witch there. And of course, there's this little temptation scene. She says, oh, I've already eaten some and it's delicious. And she has this sort of horrible red stain around her mouth from the fruit. And But she, she looks horrible. She looks drawn. She looks pale. And so death has entered her in a new way because of eating this apple that, that they're forbidden to eat. And for a moment, Diggory is tempted to take this apple home and to use it not for himself, but to give to his mother. So the thing he longs for most is for his mother, who's very sick on her deathbed, to become well. The thing the witch longs for is power. The witch does not resist that longing. She follows it. She finds death. Diggory finds, with Polly's help in community, finds the strength to resist that longing and brings the apple back to Aslan. And so then this is moving into what you were saying, Crystal, where Diggory is in this, is in this relationship with Polly, who's helping him to do what Aslan has asked. But then when they get to Aslan, there's this scene where Diggory reluctantly hands over the apple to Aslan and, and it gives up all hope of, of healing his mother with this, with this blessed apple. And he's only looking down at Aslan's feet. But for a moment, to be a person is to face another. He looks up into the face of Aslan and finds that he sees tears falling uh, from Aslan's eyes. And it's in this encounter that he receives peace about his decision. And Aslan not only uses the apple for the healing of, of or for the, the protection of, of Narnia, but Diggory's obedience also returns the apple to him. Aslan gives him the apple, uh, some of the apple to take to his mother uh, for her to be healed and become well. So 
our obedience, our 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 own uh, sanctification, Diggory's sanctification was not for his own sake. It was, but it was also for the sake of Narnia and was for the sake of his mother, uh, and he could not have foreseen it. So our participation in theosis is a deepening of communion and a deepening of community, even if it's in ways that we can't predict or see. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea of the self becomes known by facing the other well, you can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces, uh, where the, um, the protagonist has to face her own selfishness. But that is also very relevant to a theorist, another Russian Orthodox theorist who was actually exiled by Stalin. He was a contemporary of Sayers and Lewis, and he talked about our identity dependent on facing the other. Our becoming is about looking the other in the face, and especially this, what you so lovely recounted about Diggory finally looking at the face of Aslan. So let's, since we're here, let's look at relationships a little more about theosis and relationships. Communion underlies being. So sanctification has to also be taking place in that facing of the other. And I know relationships were very important to Lewis, particularly I'm thinking of friendships that meant a lot to him and marriage. I'm wondering uh, how do these relationships relate to spiritual transformation. People talk about the Inklings a lot, but I think one of his most important relationships in terms of his sanctification was with his adoptive mother, Mrs. Moore. Uh, she was a rather difficult personality. She was a very gracious hostess. She was the uh, mother of one of his friends who'd been killed in World War I, Patty Moore. Uh, and I think we see reflections of her personality in the screw tape letters. It keeps talking about the devil... A screw tape is telling the young tempter that uh, the patient's mother is a great test tube or experimental environment for his spirit for a spiritual defeat or spiritual frustration. And he says that when people have lived together a long time, they know how to push each other's buttons and they know how to get <laughs> each other, you know, bring out the worst in each other. So I think oddly, Lewis's relationship with Mrs. Moore is one of the things that had him practice patience and. Uh, uh, perseverance and charity every day of his life. He often said in his letters, we are not a happy house. We've had another brouhaha. She had a lot of uh, drama around she and the, the uh, cleaning ladies and the, the housemaids there in the house. Uh, Lewis said, when it comes to, uh, he was talking about free will versus determinism. And he says, when it comes to other people, we should be Arminians. We should hope that they can change, or excuse me, the other way around. When it comes to other people, we should be Calvinists. We should never assume they can change from where they are. But when it comes to ourselves, we should be Arminians. We should assume there's room for change and growth and evolution. And that's kind of a funny way to put it because we're, people are always trying to change each other. And he was saying we probably would be better off trying to change ourselves. So a lot of his practical wisdom about relationships, I think, has to do with this constant uh, uh, tension in the air around the home. Warney actually kind of gave up on going to the kilns. He lived on his boat a lot because he just didn't like that constant feeling of a kind of domestic tyranny around the wow. kilns. Wow. Wow. It was, it was intense. I understand there was also a little dog who caused some trouble. Yeah. yeah. A little incontinent dog. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Sayers and Lewis both used the analogy of uh theatrical dramas to embody the community of sanctification. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis says, the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. And um, Sayers then used the analogy of a church should be like a theater. 
and she did a lot of writing for the stage, and she loved how theater embodied the gifts of the Spirit coming together, like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. You know, Paul's longest metaphors have to do with the body, which and every single part of the body is important. Can the hand save the eye? I do not need you. And here is an endorsement from this Eastern Orthodox theologian that influenced both Lewis and Sayers. He said, the Eastern service, Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern service takes the form of a corporate dramatic action by which the whole life of Christ is reenacted by the congregation. The priest, the deacon, the laity all have their distinct parts to play. And each of these orders of the church is essential for the proper presentation of this divine drama. And I wouldn't be surprised if Lewis, having read that by Zhernoff, was then struck when he went to an Orthodox Mass. And he probably went with Zhernoff and just saw how everybody was acting a different part. But it was all the drama of celebrating what Christ has done for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and entering into that, whether that's in worship in in liturgy, or whether that's in theater, which is a which has this really close, tight relationship with Christian worship in many ways. The important thing is to fulfill your role well. The the most important thing is not to be best friends with all the other actors. Although if you have a few (laughs) good friends, you know, that's, that can be very helpful. And I see this in really clearly in the way that Lewis writes about marriage in the four loves, uh, in the great divorce, uh, even hints of it in that hideous strength and the way that you're fulfilling your role um, in a relationship, uh, your your role of love, uh, your role of faithfulness, will sanctify you. And and I think was do either of you know? Is it Lewis that said? At least he he indicated. I think the best marriages aren't always the happiest. I don't remember him saying anything like that. Okay, maybe I was just extrapolating. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading a book about the making of The Godfather, and Coppola said, unhappy sets often make for the best movies. I don't know what he meant by that, but he said somehow <laughs> you don't necessarily have to have camaraderie on, on the set. We just had at the Weight Center, one of the reasons we love working there is just all the people that walk in the door. Last month, uh, the daughter of Chad Walsh, he was a uh, scholar at Beloit College in Wisconsin, and he was the first person to write a book about C.S. Lewis. And so he went over to meet Lewis twice in the 50s, and uh, his daughters went with him. So this woman had been there when she was 13 and again when she was 16. She met Lewis twice. And she said the first time they met at Maudlin College, and he was very uh, formal and somewhat distant, that they wanted to go up and see the Maudlin Tower. And he insisted that she and her sister were both wearing dresses. He insisted that they go last up the stairs and they oh, good go for first him. down the stairs. For the good for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then she said when she went back three years later, Joy Davidman was in his life. And she said he seemed so much more relaxed and there was all this repartee. And she said he really kind of transformed his social persona to be able to relate to people with joy rather than just being this, this British Dawn trying to entertain mm. this American family. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of sweet that mm. she just, even as a, as a young teenager, she saw him so much more relaxed and fulfilled mm. with joy in his life than he'd been the first time she met him. Mm. And that brings me to the thought that if, if, the, if technically speaking, the best marriages or the best film sets aren't always the quote unquote happiest. That's not to say that you want coldness or that you want, or that you desire to just get trouble for yourself. I mean, Jesus didn't have to walk around looking for demons. Like they, you know, they found him. So you don't have to go looking for trouble. But when I see for, so for example, I think of in the great divorce, there's, um, 
this woman who starts approaching and she's surrounded by this festive parade of animals and people and heavenly beings. And at first, the narrator thinks that it's the Virgin Mary and and he's ready to just fall on his face. Well, he should probably fall on his face anyway, because this was a very holy woman and hardly anyone ever knew her name. She was, she was a lady who lived in a, a little town and she just lived faithfully with a not excellent husband and took care of and loved her neighbors, <clears throat> loved her family, even loved the stray cats and dogs that would come by. And so she was surrounded by festivity and joy in heaven and received honor and power and glory, <laughs> frankly, because of this faithful life she led. But then when we see her in her interaction with her now deceased husband, who has been reduced to a, a very tiny size because of his overlarge ego in life, she responds to him still in love, but we find that he's kind of enslaved to himself. And in her interactions with him, we see she's not just filling a role. There's warmth, there's charity there. But it's she doesn't take her or her husband in too seriously. And and this is very important in Eastern theology and in the process of, of sanctification, which is detachment from the passions. So when we look at her, we look at her husband who's in danger of spending eternity in hell, like he's about to choose it. And she's trying to gently convince him, no, 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 come over. This, this place is much better, believe me. He's trying to get her to express, you know, how much she misses him and her attachment to him. And, and she just can't and doesn't because her focus is on eternal things, which means she can love other mortal creatures and she can love the things that God has made with the proper kind of detachment. She's not enslaved to anything. So she's able to offer love and peace and kindness in a way that's very strong and grounded, whereas as he's kind of, you know, passionately making his case for his side, we see him diminish and diminish and diminish. It's very frantic. It's very self-centered. So yeah, this, 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 this detachment, even as you're in, even as you're facing the other, as you're in a loving communion with the other, this has to go hand in hand with a proper kind of detachment. Do either of you have any thoughts on that? This is sort of a footnote, but it's interesting that you pick out the scene with uh, Sarah Smith of Golders Green because she seems like a goddess uh, there in heaven where she was a charwoman. And Golders Green is not a very prestigious part of London. But Lewis said the whole idea of her being this goddess of nature with all the animals following her, he got that from the character of Matilda in the uh, Purgatorio. At the end of the thing, at the end of this, that story, he gets to the Garden of, of uh, Earthly Paradise. And he sees Matilda. But Dante was basing the character of Matilda on a mystic he greatly admired named Matilda of Magdeburg. So here's Lewis getting some of the imagery for great divorce from Dante. And Dante's getting it from uh, a famous medieval mystic. So all these things tie together in a fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting that both Lewis and Sayers loved Dante? In fact, the last several years of Sayer's life, she was translating Dante into English for uh, the Penguin series of the Divine Comedy. But that whole image of Purgatorio is a process. It's a process of purification. It is an image Purgatory is an image of theosis, really. You talked about the magician's nephew. When you think of that great scene in Voyage of the Dawn Treader where uh, Eustace has become a dragon, and he he doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to go back to being a little boy. So he tries to peel off this layer of dragon skin, and there's just another dragon underneath that. And he feels, and finally Aslan says, well, I think I need to do that for you. And so he takes the uh, his claw and strips off all the layers of dragon skin you could see that as an image of purgation or theosis. That more, and ultimately, uh, God has to do that soul work for you. You can't, through self-effort, get to a level of spiritual purity or illumination. And I think that's almost the dark night of the soul right there when he has to accept the pain of having Aslan do the surgery rather than the self-effort of stripping off more and more dragon skins. 
These seem to map on tantalizingly well with the three books of the Ransom Trilogy, which, um, David, you and I are kind of gaga about. You've written an entire book on right. the Ransom Trilogy. We won't call it the Space Trilogy because one of the whole points of the Ransom Trilogy is that space is not just space. It's uh, it's the heavens. It's full of, um, it's it's full. It's not empty. So the three books of the Ransom Trilogy, let's let's chat about that for just a minute. Where How do we see purification, illumination, and sainthood played out in uh, in Ransom, in um, the, the three books, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and then That Hideous Strength? Yeah, that is a great question. I, I spent a whole chapter of my book on the, the Ransom Trilogy. Uh, I took uh, Evelyn Underhill's paradigm of the five stages and showed how Lewis who uh, loved Evelyn Underhill and actually got a fan letter from her about Out of the Silent Planet. Shortly before she died, she wrote and said, I love this novel. And I think it's because intuitively she felt that he was showing you the mystical way or showing you this spiritual pilgrimage. The scene you mentioned, he gets abducted and carried off to Mars. But when he's in space, he expects coldness and blackness and emptiness. And he sees illumination and fire and comets and colors the kind of images we get back from the Hubble telescope. And he says, why did they call it space? This is not empty and cold. This is glorious. And he said, we need to go back to the, the older concept of the heavens. And Evelyn Underhill uh, singled out that scene is especially excellent. And I think what it's doing is it's illustrating the awakening of the soul to God. Uh, Ransom has already been a Christian, kind of a nominal Anglican. But suddenly when he sees the beauties of creation, he uh, starts thinking about the creator. So, but he also, both in Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, there's quite a bit of uh, illumination and purgation that needs to go on. And Out of the Silent Planet, it's mainly anxiety. At the end of the story, the, the Archon of Mars uh, says, you're not guilty of too many things except for anxiety. You're constantly fearful. He comes from a fallen planet where the unknown is usually something negative. So he, he can't get used to the idea of unfallen planets where you're not going to be surprised by something horrible. When he goes to Paralandra, he was he was taken off to Malacandra involuntarily and underwent a lot of spiritual experiences. When he goes to Paralandra, he volunteers for the mission. And rather than being going in a spaceship, he's sent in a coffin. And in many ways, the, symbol that, the symbolism there is uh, uh, impossible to miss. So he, he has to undergo a kind of death of self when he goes on this mission to Paralandra or Venus. When he arrives there, he had sun exposure on one side of his body and not on the other. So the green lady, the Eve of Paralandra, calls him piebald because he's really half sunburned and half uh, pale. And Lewis loved a mystic who's only known as the a man from uh, Berlin, or it's not a, a man from Hamburg. It's called the Theologica Germanica. And it talks about the constant struggle between I-hood, capital I, I mean, capital letter I, versus Godhood. And one of Lewis's most marked up books in the library we have at the Wade is the Theologica Germanica. And I think he's literally showing you in the piebald nature of Ransom, this struggle between his anxiety, why isn't God helping me? I'm, I'm not adequate to the task, why is, versus his gradual, uh, reassurance that he can complete this mission. When you get to that hideous strength, uh, he's pretty much arrived. He's in a place of walking with God. He's wounded. He's got the wound of Christ. He's got a, a wounded heel. And, but he's sitting in, in uh, this kind of majestic setting, almost like a king. And this time, as he's gotten very far along in his spiritual journey, he meets Jane Studdick, who's this uh, disillusioned young intellectual. Uh, but Interestingly, he kind of passes on the mystical torch. Now it's Jane and Mark who need to undergo a spiritual journey. I want to read you one passage because of its mystical implications. This is in that hideous strength when Jane first meets uh, Ransom, uh, who's in this upper room with a golden beard. And even though he's an old man, he looks like a 20-year-old boy. And Lewis describes it this way. This is Jane Studdick meeting Ransom. A boundary had been crossed. She had come into a world or into a person, or into the presence of a person. Something expectant, patient, inexorable, met her with no veil or protection between. In this height and depth and breadth, 
The little idea of herself, which she had hitherto uh, called me, dropped down and vanished, unfluttering into bottomless distance like a bird in space without air. And that's a very mystical description of her suddenly realizing her own smallness. And she almost experiences a death of self the very first time she meets Ransom. So apart from the overall structure of the three novels, you have these moments of mystical encounter, which are very similar to the writings of uh, Evelyn Underhill and uh, some of Lewis's favorite mystics like Julian of Norwich and uh, Walter Hilton, two English mystics. And then we see in, in this trilogy, we actually see Ransom come to the the peak of the mountain, as it were. I mean, he he's someone who goes through theosis to, to, at such a depth and allows the life of Christ to be infusing him. And he suffers and, and, and experiences a kind of death on Paralandra, um, several deaths actually in at, on Mars and then on Venus. He experiences several deaths until he's been purified. He climbs the mountain, he sees the great dance, this beatific vision, and then he lives out uh, the life of Christ on the planet Earth until he's He's taken up by the gods to return to Venus at the end of that hideous strength. Sorry, spoilers. I'll have to put a big spoiler alert in in the intro to this podcast. And so when Jane comes into his presence, when you're describing that, I just thought he's he has become an icon of Christ. And so maybe another way to describe theosis is that we become, we're becoming three-dimensional, walking, talking, living, blood in our veins icons literally, of Jesus Christ, so that coming into the presence of a deified Christian and a sanctified Christian is to come into the presence of Jesus in a very real way, so that the same things happen when you come into the presence of the Lord, which is that you realize your smallness, you see, you feel where you're inadequate, but you're also raised into his grace and invited to experience the grace of God. That's really beautiful. Crystal, did you have any thoughts here? Well, I was thinking that the one essay that strikes me as summarizing much of what we've been talking about today is C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, where he talks about this weight of wanting to um, have the glory of Christ, but it's about being in the presence of Christ. And that goes back to, this is not just about glorification of the self. It's about sharing in Christ's glory. But then C.S. Lewis ends the weight of glory, reminding us that we should have as much a sense of a burden, a weight for the glory of others, for the glory of a charwoman. And so that returns us to community. This isn't about an autonomous process of sanctification. And you see that in the Ransom Trilogy, how, especially at the very end, where hideous strength, it's comparing two different kinds of community, a community that draws you more towards self-service and narcissistic um, desires versus a community that draws your attention towards Christ. Yes, those two communities. You could read uh, Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring, to describe the community at Nice, this hierarchy of trying to get higher and higher and making moral compromises in order to rise the ladder of ambition. But the community at St. Anne's, where Ransom is, is well described in an essay by Lewis called Membership, that uh, a person, you lose your name in prison, you get a number, but you also lose your name in a family. You become mom or dad. or And so there's two different ways to lose your personal identity. One is to and give it up as a, as a member of community. So at, those two essays are a great contrast in terms of these really sick community at Nice versus the really healthy Christian community at St. Anne's. And the, this ties in perfectly beautifully with the concept of self-emptying, which is what Jesus did for us and modeled for us. Self-emptying is related to theosis very deeply. And I wonder, we have, you know, one more segment we can discuss, which is this, this emptying, this encountering of the abyss, facing the abyss, giving up, uh, of dying to self. 
this is a different author, but uh, Thomas Burton has a great book called Raids on the, the Unspeakable. In uh, Buddhist theology especially, there's this encounter with the abyss, this feeling of nothingness, and uh, the fact no meaning, no purpose, no plan, and that we ourselves are nothing. It's a very earth-shaking experience, but Thomas Burton thinks that Christians need to undergo that too, but when he calls it raids on the unspeakable, once you face the abyss or the nothingness, uh, how do you come back and start rebuilding uh, yourself in God's eyes rather than trying to use your human resources to maintain your, your personal integrity? The whole image of that hideous strength is the Tower of Babel that people are trying to use their resources to build a way to heaven, and that gets destroyed. Uh, this, both in the Bible and in that hideous drink, these human attempts to achieve Godhead end in destruction and tragedy. It has to go the other way around. And then in contrast to that, there's the great dance at the end of Paralandra, which is a kind of right, right. A, a beatific vision, which is a, the beatific vision is also always a participation in the beatific vision. You can't just watch it like you watch TV. You have to be caught up in it, which is why I think Lewis uses, you know, beautifully this image of the dance. And to end our time today, I'd just love to read a quote from this portion of the book that ties into what you were saying, David. And uh, at the very end of the dance, they the the all things in creation come into this paean of, of praise and this sort of ecstasy uh, that they're having on the top of the holy mountain. And at the very end, they ask the question of the abyss. And they say together, let no mouth let no mouth open to gainsay it. There seems to be no plan because he because it is all plan. There seems no center because it is all center. Yet this seeming also is the end and final cause for which he spreads out time so long and heaven so deep, lest if we never met the dark and the road that leads nowhither and the question to which no answer is imaginable, we should have in our minds no likeness of the abyss of the Father, into which if a creature dropped on his thoughts forever, he shall hear no echo return to him. Blessed be he. And then it says, now by mm. a transition, which Ransom did not notice, it seemed that what had begun as speech was turned into sight. Mm. I love that Lewis used mm. the that word transition. Yeah. yeah. So I, I hope that what we have done in speech today would turn into sight <laughs> for each of us mm. and for each of our listeners. And I've been speaking today and having so much fun with Dr. Crystal Downing and Dr. David Downing. Thank you so much for taking time away from the important and enjoyable work that you do to speak with us today on the Living Church Podcast. Thank Great. you. Thank you, Amber. So good to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you give us a good rating? Leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're using today. And come back in two weeks for conversation with the Reverend Canon Nicholas Porter, Executive Director of Jerusalem Peacebuilders, and Israeli peace activist Sarah Benazera about not just handling national and personal conflict in tense times, but transforming conflict. Sounds like Pentecost work to me. Tune in. I'm your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.